Hello and welcome to the Lifefulness Podcast. I'm your host, Sunson Jones, and I'll be joined later by the wonderful co-host, James Croft. James and I are both ate- atheists. We're atheists. Maybe we're atheists. I don't know what that is. We're atheists who have, respectively, started non-religious churches. That's me. And James is the minister in a non-religious church. And so we are dedicating our lives to seeing how you can help anyone lead a rich spiritual life. Oh, can you be secular and spiritual? Yeah, find out more. Uh, In a way that everyone can be included. So whether you've of faith or not, how can we make sure that uh, everyone feels connected deeply to each other and their meaning? And so uh, each week we have a guest. Dramatic pause. And our guest this week is the journalist and broadcaster Lucy Ziegel, who has been at the forefront of communicating and campaigning around ethical and environmental questions in the UK for the past decade. For years, she had a weekly column in The Observer which dealt with the sorts of daily ethical issues that can seem so intractable. What I always loved about her writing was that Like you could tell that she took this stuff seriously, like she really knew her stuff. But then like she wasn't, I don't know, feels slightly negative character. It wasn't too lentily or mungby, like realise that we've got lives to lead and we can't all go off grid, basically. Uh, So she's also an author. She's written books on fast fashion, on plastic. She also campaigns. So she is not just writing about it. She, uh, for instance, around fashion, she set up the Green Carpet Project that sent celebs to red carpet events, but in sustainable frocks and gowns. So you could see that actually what uh, this idea that like fashion, if it was sustainable, had to be ugly, just wasn't true at all. And we had a wonderful conversation. Uh, It was super wide ranging. uh, And what I really loved was one she expressed her work like from a sort of spiritual like she's not religious at all point of view and it was just a whole new way of looking at the supply chain as a way to be connected to other people and that was amazing uh she then spoke about the circular economy she's just become a uh, member of a the chair indeed of the real circular economy uh coalition uh, and uh, yeah that was fascinating to learn about that and then well her expertise in fashion really does make me think I've got to stop buying so many strappy tops Uh, so that is Lucy she is coming right up one word of caution her sound goes a little bit funny every now and again Uh, I know it's a bit annoying when that happens we try to fix it we fixed it as much as possible but just stick through it It, you're going to be able to manage Uh, the uh, yeah so that's it Uh, here is the podcast so, hey, Lucy, hey. Uh, welcome to the Lifefulness podcast. Thank you so much for being here for, uh, we'll have gone and bigged you up uh, in the intro. So, uh, and we'll have told people about your uh, journalism and your broadcasting and your sort of uh, commitment to sort of helping people answer big ethical questions. And uh, so we're going to kick off by asking you the question we ask all of our guests, which is, uh, what was the sort of religious, spiritual or philosophical background to your childhood? Wow. 
it, well, it was mixed. So, well, literally, so um, my dad is a Protestant and my mum is a Catholic and I'm from Irish stock, so that's a thing. And um, I sometimes feel that if you, like, cut me down the middle, I'd be half of each and the two halves are, like, battling against each other. Um, and a lot of my friends are the same, so um, it's just quite funny in this certain sort of you know, like tropes that you think are from each side. <laughs> so there's a sort of internal conflict. But the lucky, lucky thing that happened to me, and I think it's um, a huge privilege, and I thank my parents for it every day, is that neither of them is religious. So I had a life free of religious dogma. Um, and I think that's a great gift for a child. I mean, obviously, I went through a school system where you learned it by rote and you did a lot of Bible studies. So we learned all the stories. My sister actually was very, very good at Bible stories. She knew all of the characters and she could do all the quizzes. Um, she's not religious either. And then um, I was a chorister. So I um, specialized in plain song. Uh, James made a joke about plain song before we started. Yeah, I, I was a chorister too. So we ah. had yeah. yeah, so you know, yeah. so I'm hanging out with all the cool kids. Yeah, the real yeah. cool ones. Yeah, so every, everyone Thanks wanted so. to be me. Yeah. Um, yeah, so <laughs> I, I, um, so yeah, music was my kind of job from quite an early age, and I sing, you know, sang all the Nunc Dimittis and all the Magnificats, and I know all those bits and pieces. Um, but I never, I, I never was religious. I was never a believer. So. I remember actually being with a friend of mine and we came out, we were in the, you know, obviously up in the gallery, whatever it's called, where we used to sing. And then we came down the steps. So there's a little spiral staircase one Sunday. And she said, after even song, and she said, wow, I found that so moving. And I looked at her and I said, do you believe in this? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and at that point, Oops. I realized that um, some people were quite religious. And I assumed that everyone had been like doing it as, you know, more of a job, really, more of a, a chance to build up some performance uh, credentials, which is terribly wicked of me. So, um, yeah, so I, I never I, I never felt that I was um, forced to believe in anything. And um, I'm actually quite proud because I think historically going back, so my Catholic side of the family who were, um, were actually Irish then from Liverpool, um, they were what's called lapsed Catholics. So they used to describe themselves as lapsed Catholics, which for a long time I thought was a branch of Catholicism. <laughs> um, so I, 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 was, I grew up with a very irreverent, but maybe culturally um, Catholic background a little bit. So my mum will always get really angry if she thinks Catholics are being persecuted, but she has... I shouldn't really speak for it, but she has absolutely no interest in Catholicism. But there's a kind of social justice element. And my grandfather used to tell, tell me terrible stories about being um, uh, at school with Christian brothers and how they were basically psychos. And um, I remember he said he went to school when he was four and, you know, he had to walk like three miles to school or whatever. And you got there and then this priest appeared in the classroom, picked up a wooden chair, broke it into like five pieces over his knee. And he looked at this classroom of tiny little boys and he said, that's the kind of man I am. Okay. So, 
<laughs> so I, I was it was wow. treated as something of a joke and with a lot of irreverence and but then we played family fortunes which we do at Christmas quite often a few years ago we did it on zoom this year but uh, a few years ago we were all in person and and the question was, family fortune's question, uh, where in a home is a good place to hide something, like a good hiding place in a, in a house? And my uncle went, Bzzz, and he said, priest's hole. And I was like, <laughs> ah, you know what? That's because you're culturally Catholic. Because like literally a Protestant family, no one would have said that. That's like a crazy answer. So anyway, that's a long way of describing my, 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 my brush with religion. Mm. The one, so we always, uh, after that, we normally people ask people like our six lifefulness questions. I'm just going to like, but then uh, reading an interview, there's also, I found that your, certainly there was an ethical element to your, you're speaking about your f- grandfather who was sort of uh, against uh, plastic uh, before his time and how, and that's been something that you've really campaigned for. Yeah, so it's clearly that there was, like there's a, a large ethical dimension to sort of your family by the sounds of Yes, things. it was. So my granddad, that's the same granddad that told me the story about the Christian brother in the chair. So yeah, there was there was a very strong sense of justice um, for people and for planet. And he'd, you know, he'd grown up in proper poverty. So he knew what poverty was. And for me, he really taught me about ethical values. So you know, he would, but not in a, not in a sort of preachy way. It was just part of what he would, he would say. So the plastic thing, for example, in the 1980s, I used to spend a lot of time around at their house and I loved plastic stuff and I had plastic crap everywhere. And I had this sort of headband with these sort of spirals on with plastic hearts on the end. (laughs) And I was really pleased with these. And my granddad it's like, what, what are those? You know, what those horrible things? And I said, oh, they're really cool. You know, they're made of plastic. And he said, well, that's disgusting because he said plastic's very precious. And we're making all of these things out of plastic. And I think at the time, laundry detergent manufacturers had started making those dosing balls, which they put on the top of a plastic bottle. So you're going away from plastic uh, washing powder. And he, he he saw an advert for that on TV at the same time. He said, look, that's another thing. Those shouldn't be made from plastic. And every time people buy that bottle, they're going to get a new dosing ball. And all of these things will never, never leave. They'll be here for hundreds and hundreds of years. So he was very ahead of his time. He wouldn't take plastic bags in the supermarket. He used to take his own string bags, which I found really embarrassing. Um, he would take the wrapping off stuff in the supermarket. So, I mean, this was like 1980s. So this was many, many years ago. And of course, the punchline is he worked for Shell Oil. He worked for an oil company. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, he was from a generation where he worked in the laboratories for, for, he was a scientific translator. So they had access to a lot of papers. Now, he never talked about climate, um, although we do know now that there were discussions about climate. At around that time and before that time but he did I think he really subscribed to the notion of peak oil so at some point we were going to run out which is is not uh, correct but he had a different view about resources and resource management and you know I thought it was interesting like where is stuff from the now I've cut this bit out. Uh, the uh, oh god it's on the live stream now. <laughs> what are you talking about it's all live we're going to cut that Never bit mind. out mind. Cut, cut, we'll cut that cut bit out. out for people who are watching it. 
the uh, yeah, so and there's uh, actually there's more than we want to delve into around that issue, and we're going to uh, save that for after you ask us our after we ask you rather our speed round the lifefulness six questions. As you uh, know, we're looking at uh, spiritual communities and showing how anyone can go and adapt the lessons from them in their own life or in a community or organisation. And so we've got six questions. They're big questions which you ask you to, uh, ask you to answer in a small amount okay. of time. And so the first First one is, what is the ultimate meaning in your life? What value do you consider sacred, divine, whatever word you think means that for you? Ecology. I mean, the the way that nature ecosystems work, I mean, like they are just phenomenal and they should be completely sacrosanct and interdependent and just super clever beyond our beyond our intelligence and we need to be really humble about them oh that's great well that's another thing we're going to dig into later james over to you so the next one is celebration and what's that other word you added last time contemplation well we yeah contemplation but where do you find celebration in life and times to contemplate meaning of life so that's our sort of translation of worship which is quite tough to go and find a translation for. Yeah, I don't know if I really got, I don't know, I'm good at like being in the moment and I can't predict when it's going to happen, which is kind of weird for a celebration because how can you have a celebration if you can't predict when you're going to be celebrating? But like I remember specific instances, like last Christmas, not the one just gone, I drove to pick up my parents-in-law down in in Devon near Dartmoor and as I drove over this hill the sun just came through the morning sun across the moors and I just had this immense moment of celebration within myself in a car just like wow that I just felt so like happy and positive and that's amazing and it was just a moment um but that's not very useful if you can't predict it because you you can't really invite people I, yeah, I think those, like, what's uh, from various people I've spoken to is that actually the, the interesting thing about the practices is about how can you go and put systems right. in place so you can, like, yeah. connect to that within a system as opposed to going, oh, that happened again, <laughs> whatever it might be, or how can I put the lessons from that into practice? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, and then the next one is community life. Like, where do you find community life at the moment? I mean, also this question is super weird nowadays as well. <laughs> well, I COVID know, but time, actually, but... it's very, it's, 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 it's maybe we're all thinking about it a lot more because obviously we miss our community when it's taken away from us. But for me, the last couple of years now, just my second winter, yeah, I, I train with a group. We have a boot camp in the village where I um, live in Surrey, and we have um, a brilliant trainer called Liam who's been doing this boot camp for ten years. I mean, he doesn't look old enough. And like we all gather there and he trains us like properly. He's quite like demanding of us. And we're all different ages and abilities. And it's just amazing. Like it's become it's three times a week. And when it's because of lockdown, it goes on to Zoom. So we still meet, but we meet on Zoom and we don't have to humiliate ourselves in public um, by running around the green. But um, it's our community. And that's really super important to me, like really become fundamental to my life, really. That sounds amazing. I want to join that. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. He's really good. And he taught me actually how to train properly, which is, you know, useful. 
because after the age of 40, if you ever want to eat anything again, you have to run a lot. I should say, well, I, I don't know. I don't know whether to give this as a diet tip. I've got diagnosed with ADHD and then you get prescribed like uh, ADHD medicine, which is basically speed. I just absolutely destroyed my appetite. So I'm, I can go full steam ahead. I don't know whether I should lie about it, that I'm on like 1960s diet pills uh, or whether, which is like, and they really work, or whether I should uh, just say, speak my truth. Uh, so the next question we have, which doesn't involve diet pills, or maybe it does, uh, what does personal growth look like for you? What does growing uh, in psychological material maturity look like? It's quite like? recent, I feel. I felt like I was, my personal growth was very stunted for many years, and there was many reasons for that. And I think one of them was because partly get wrapped up in the whole like um media thing and you become quite a specific way of doing everything especially if you do tv and you know as that sort of slightly tailed off due to my chronological growth I, I kind of thought oh well maybe this is a good time to sort of reflect on how you do things and I started to just read a lot more and I'm very interested I once about three or four years ago I sat next to a conflict resolution person on a flight to Kenya and he was telling me about how he used to be really angry and um I think he was a barrister or something like very successful and then he basically decided he had to do something different in his life and he started this conflict resolution training and he's been very successful at that and I just found all of that really really fascinating so I try and read a lot about how I can um, listen to other people because I wasn't very good at that because there's so much um, tension isn't there and so much conflict especially around social media um, I really wanted to understand and underwrap it, unwrap it a little bit more. And especially at the moment when there's a lot of conspiracy theories, um, which is my initial response was to react and go, you know, you moron, blah, blah, blah. I kind of wanted to understand where these came from a little bit more and to understand um, how uh, people can fall into this way of thinking Um partly to make sure I didn't, and also um, to understand how I was going to navigate contact with people who were saying things that I disagree with, essentially. So, Great, thanks so I, much. I don't know, I, I, feel like, I feel like I want your approval from my recent... <laughs> uh, the uh, very wise, the wisdom is just... I'm sort of like, I almost feel that I, I don't need any New Year's resolutions, they're so just bathed in your presence. <laughs> Thank you. I need to stop seeking approval now. That's my next. I'll do that. <laughs> 2022. The the next one is serving others. So yeah. where do you find opportunities to be of service to other people? I think there's loads of opportunities, actually. Um, and I think um, I don't have children. So I always think I have a bit more time to um, to help other people. Um, and I think that I should use that time to help other people because I mean, I'm, I'm really able to waste an enormous amount of time. Like it's incredible. And, um, you know, before lockdown and stuff, I could maybe, I don't know, like spend 40 minutes deciding which coffee shop I want to go in, like after I've parked, you know, like just so much time. And now I, I, I don't, you know, the coffee shops and well, they are open at the moment or they're not open, whatever. So anyway, I, I, I just have a 
fine. They're open, you're not allowed oh, to go into them. Or you're allowed to go into them, you're not allowed to buy coffee. And, and also when they were open, you weren't allowed to use a reusable cup, which means I can't go in them. So anyway, there's a, there's a whole thing. But I do think that um, I, I've just been able to make myself more useful to people who are friends of friends or who needed a bit of support or needed a bit of help. And I've... Um, yeah, I've I found different ways of doing that. So I don't want to. I don't want to speak. I don't want to tell other people's stories for them. But I've been able recently to um, support some people more, which you know is not. It's a you 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 fear doing that because you fear opening up your life. I think a lot of people fear opening up their life and giving someone too much time and. Um, then not being able to do your, you know, there's all sorts of things. There's all sorts of commitments that people have, but I think that it's manageable and I want to be able to do more of it because I believe that we should help each other and we need to help each other. And there are lots of systems that aren't working very well at the moment. So um, sorry, that's a very convoluted way of saying that I do like to help other people. (laughs) <laughs> no, it, so- it sounds like it. It sounds like you're doing it well, and this is your affirmation for your answer. Thank you. As you <laughs> and also, and also, way better to go. Well, anyway, there's Denise next door. Always had a problem drinking, <laughs> uh, cheating on her husband. I help her, but yeah, anyway, yeah, shush, between yeah. you, me, and the gay post. Yeah, yeah. Her name's uh, not Denise. The, uh, so it's fine. <laughs> yeah. And then changing the world is our sort of translation of this idea of uh, evangelism, in fact, and which realize that it contains one thing of making the world like as you believe it should be but also something about sharing and communicating about it so what does change in the world look like for you yeah it's, it's a, of course a really interesting question and communication is so important changing the world should be really accessible like it's it's, it's not a thing that anyone is disbarred from and there's no organization that you need to join to make that happen and one of the things why religions never appealed to me is because that you have to jump through quite a few hoops to um, access certain points Um, and I don't think that when it comes to the environment I don't think you should have to jump through any hoops and yet we have created hoops so you know for me over the last decade in particular it's about sort of removing those hoops and also just trying to get out and talk to people who don't think that this is their fight to tell them it can be because that's kind of the ingredient that we've been missing, I think. That is great. And particularly if those uh, single-use hoops uh, made of plastic, that is the worst of all worlds yes. there. Uh, and and so what are, like, you've been an ethical, the question was, like, you've been a uh, uh, a journalist around consumer affairs, particularly with an idea of uh, around ethics, it'd be great to know, like, what are the sort of most common ethical dilemmas that people come to you with? Like, what are the things? And, and also, what are some of the answers that would be just annoying if you just could reiterate <laughs> all the issues which people have? Our listeners would be like, yeah, we already know that. Get to some of the things you can do. Well, I mean, the, the, the one that I could have written, I wrote a column for 14 years where I basically was the eco-agony aunt. And um, I could have answered this dilemma every week because I had so many people who asked it. But, you know, can I recycle plastic? You know, that was pretty much <laughs> the question, the perennial question, and particular then particular sorts of 
plastic? Does it really get recycled? So loads and loads of things about recycling. And we know because there's been a massive awakening, hasn't there, over plastic use and single use plastic in particular, that this is a um, what I would call a gateway issue. So an issue that is is so tangible, like there's something plastic in your hands every few minutes of every day. Um, and it, it's the thing that starts to connect you to pollution, the environment, environmental degradation. Um, and it's much more immediate than the climate crisis, for example, although they're obviously very connected. So loads and loads of questions about recycling. And um, what's become quite tough is that um, the recycling of plastic and the possibilities of recycling plastic have been so overblown, in my opinion. Um, and um, it's all a lot of bullshit, yes, right? Yes, that's essentially. Uh, my, my wife and yes. I have uh, discussions about yes. this, Wait, and I am regularly told that it's like that's not the right bin for it. You've got to go and clean this. I'm like, none of it. You can't reuse it again. Like none of it really gets it's, reused. With plastic. What? Yeah. Well, not okay. No, no. I do recycle yeah. ever before I get. <laughs> I've choked to death on sort of uh, sports, <laughs> but uh, the yeah, there's there's a, the what's been sold around what gets recycled seems to be so overblown. Oh, it's such a pantomime. It's like you know, there's these endless theses on uh, circularity and plastics and blah blah blah, and I'm yet to see any evidence that plastic can be a circular material. I'm sorry, but I'm not. And kind of all the, there's lots of exciting innovation. I'm sure we'll talk about circularity and circular economy, but there's loads of exciting innovation even in textiles and even in fashion. But you know, the truth is that if you look at what's happening, that's really interesting. They're usually looking at natural fibres. So in fashion, you know, the first question I'll ask is, is is this scheme for polyester? And they'll be like, no, 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 it's for cotton, it's for your naturals, it's for cellulose, it's for things that break down naturally. And the trouble is with plastic is that we've all become addicted to it. And, you know, obviously we can't get rid of it completely. You know, know, replacement heart valves are made from plastic and things that we really, really need and want. But we haven't had a, a sort of discussion as society about what we think is important plastic and what is not important plastic and you know shrink wrapping a coconut for example i would say is um uh, uh an act of hooliganism and gross stupidity so you know that if only they could get some sort of hard protective know, coating on the outside of the coconut i don't know if you can think of anything but yeah um but i have had you know i've had over the years i've had huge conversations with um supermarket chains about the coconut and uh, um, I specialised in coconuts for about half a year. And Morrison's actually had the gall to say to me, we can't take the shrink wrap off. First of all, they said, we can't take the shrink wrap off because we need to put the barcode on it. I was like, don't, don't even talk to me about this. And then they went, okay, okay, that's not right. So this is why we're not, we can't take the shrink wrap off because the fibre, the fibrous hair might choke a child. Ah! I mean, literally, that's what they said to me. Oh my gosh! People will invent so much oh, yeah. crap to avoid doing the thing which is mildly inconvenient. So, and to be fair, that is why there are no children in countries where coconuts grow naturally. So that is <laughs> yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> got to be so fair. To and that's why hardware stores shrink wrap all the ends of brooms, and brushes. Yeah. Oh, exactly. they don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's so plastic has been is clear. So, and then what is your like? What what, what can people do better? 
Well, I mean, I, you know, I, I actually had to write a whole book on this. I wrote a book called Turning the Tide on Plastic, which is essentially just about taking control of your bin, your trash can. So, I mean, you wouldn't think you have to write a whole book about that, but you do because life has become very complex and we've all been seduced by this idea and this idea and this idea. So it's, it's like, you know, I follow a detox plan. I have a chart that I put on my fridge and then I look at all the plastic that comes into my bin and I think I didn't want this. I didn't ask for any of this plastic, like 90% of that plastic I have not asked for and I'm paying for. I'm paying for the cost of the plastic to wrap the blooming stuff, which I don't want. Each household in the UK spends over 500 quid a year on plastic that they don't want and they didn't ask for. And then I'm paying again through my tax through my council tax to get it collected and disposed of and I'm really sick of doing it and I don't want to do it and the you know obviously the um, effect that it has on the environment is is you know unbelievably detrimental and then you start to look deeper and deeper into waste and what happens to it Um, I've just finished or I'm just working on a project um, which looks at how much of our waste is increasingly going for incineration in the UK and this is mirrored by every western um, democracy worldwide or you know every every country um, every developed nation there is only really one outcome eventually it's going to be burned and then if you look at the carbon cost of that it's it's not just high it's something that could undermine our um, potential of, of reaching Paris climate goals. And those, as we know, are not arbitrary goals. They're a matter of life or death. So <laughs> when are we going to get a grip over these things? And what I like about this subject and why it works well in interaction with, you know, people reading their newspapers on a Sunday or, you know, people at home or whatever whatever their circumstances, is because it starts with things that we see and touch every day and then it ends up as an existential issue. And the decisions we make now affect our children and our grandchildren's future, not mine because I don't have any but yours. So in a way, I'm just being really cool. No skin off my nose. Yeah. Yeah. They do say the sign of it. Was that the... Uh, a civilization is uh, where our old men plant trees that they will not shade under. Uh, and you you're really sort of doing that for the entire so- I'm an old woman that won't shade under my That's trees. That's the big point so I was making. Are. Looking old, Lucy, <laughs> looking old. <laughs> so we're interrupting the podcast to announce that we're going to be launching a new feature and we would love to have your help to make it. So uh, everyone who is a regular listener will know there's a, a little message in the middle like this where I speak about the Lifefulness community and the Lifefulness courses and I thought it'd be actually far better if instead of talking about it we could actually hear from different people who are part of the community and people who are coming to the small group and who have signed up. You know, I can reach out to them. We're already in touch. Uh, and uh, that, But it's you. You might be listening to it. I don't know where you are. I don't know uh, what you get from this. Uh, but it, if there is a way that the Lifefulness podcast or Lifefulness ideas have influenced you, have gone and helped you with something, or even if there's just a sort of a part of your life where you have just... Uh, you know, succeeded in applying the sorts of ideas that we talk about, 
We would love to hear from you. And the idea is that we will go and sort of get a short piece of audio and go and inject it here because like... This is about community and it's not just about me talking about joining the community. Those are very different things. And so the way that you can get involved is if you email Sanderson plus addition sign podcast at lifefulness.io. So that is Sanderson plus like the sign plus like on a calculator podcast at lifefulness.io. And then uh, in this section, we're going to go and hear from someone in the community who is putting these ideas into practice. Because I, I tell you why, I received an email from a listener and it was just so touching and I loved it and I wanted to share it. And I should have done this part at the start. It uh, really makes a lot more sense than just going, I should have starting, I will interrupt your podcast. But guess what? I didn't do that. So Please email if this has gone and given you insight at Sanderson Plus Podcast at lifefulness.io. Back to Lucy. You mentioned there the circuit you've you've gone and like you've written books on fashion, on plastic, and then you've now started this initiative, which is the uh circuit- Real Circularity Coalition. That's it. I knew your circularity. I'm pretty sure it was yeah, coalition. Yeah, someone introduced yeah. me on Radio 4 as the Real Circulation Coalition, <laughs> which is quite funny because I have got quite bad circulation. Anyway, I thought that was funny. It also brings to mind the sort of real IRA oh, and various other splinter yeah. groups. Like they, maybe well, there's are, a circularity coalition and you're like the provisional a, we circularity. Are, we are a bit <laughs> splinter group because there is the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, um, and they work a lot on um, uh, circularity in plastics, for example. And we don't we don't do that. I mean, you know, because uh, I don't think the evidence shows at the moment that uh, plastics are very circular. So yeah, so the Real Circularity Coalition is so essentially. Let me describe it like this, if I may. We are trapped in a linear economy, so everything that we consume. And every service that we use, more or less, is linear. It's from a, a linear economy. So it's take, make, and waste. So some resources were taken from the earth. Something was made. A lot of the resources were wasted in making the product. And then we are going to junk it, going to discard it before it's time, which just adds to the environmental insult, if you like. And the effect of this on the ecosystem is catastrophic, So we now know, and this is all evidence-based, that our consumption is driving these existential threats. So climate and species loss and biodegradation. So all of these crises that are affecting us. And we also know now that we used to live in the Holocene for about 12,000 years, and that was where the Earth um, the planet regulated itself in a way that was, you know, pretty habitable for for humans, for our species. It was pretty good. I mean, most most of the problems we've caused ourselves um, through wars and what what have you. Um, but we have seen a shift since the Industrial Revolution. We've seen this shift to the Anthropocene, and that means that we humans, Homo sapiens have become a geological, have caused a geological epoch shift. I mean, that's incredible. And we don't really talk about that. I mean, like, that's what I call a hard Brexit, but it's not really mentioned. 
<laughs> in polite society. And I think we should like talk about it and do something about it. So what would be smart to do if you think we use like 93 billion tons of um, resources of materials from the earth every year? And that includes rare earth minerals and rocks for asphalt and all sorts of things, um, right through to cotton, you know, what we need to produce cotton and oil, of course. And you think 93 billion tonnes of stuff we're extracting from the earth in some format. And all of those cause pollution in the extraction. And some of those cause very heavy pollution. So to extract or drill oil creates, you know, the biggest amount of carbon emissions. So there's lots of theories that environmentalists have posited over the years as to how we reduce that. So you have a whole kind of group of people who say, well, the way to produce that is to have fewer humans. Then we need, you know, less stuff and that figure will drop. I don't know about that. I think it's really like hard. You're nailing it, Lucy. Well, I've done my bit, but it, even yeah. but yeah. even so, once again, once Lucy again. S doing her bit. All these yeah, other fuckers really slowing shit up. Well, anyway, I mean, I think it's pretty rude to say to certain demographics, and we know who the demographics are. Hey, you can't have any kids. Hey, stop having any kids because you know, like we're now we're in mortal danger. And also, I don't believe believe that biologically like these guys and they tend to be kind of older guys really know like how many people the earth can sustain anyway so that 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 population control thing i don't buy so that's one of the things the other way of of trying to resolve this 93 billion tons of stuff problem is to say everyone stop consuming everything like don't don't get anything ever again And that, in a way, is also really difficult because people do need some stuff. And I also, you know, work a lot with young designers and young people coming into the fashion business. (laughs) It's like it's fairly shit to say to them, hey, we can't sell anything or make anything anymore. Uh, Sorry, because we did that. That would be a bit of a downer, wouldn't it? Yeah, I was the last one that could make a pair of sneakers. Sorry. (laughs) Um, So it's just not going to happen. So the best thing to do would be to stop using resources in such an idiotic fashion and to stop the take, make and waste uh, system because it is not compatible with ecosystems. It doesn't work and it's really stupid. So the whole Real Circularity Coalition is about changing from a linear system to a circular system, but one that's really circular. Um, And that means that you have to be very alert to... um, what is really going to work. So both the the science, the ambition, it all has to match up. And really a very shorthand way of saying how you do that is to use earth logic. So if you look at the fashion industry, for example, Hello. earth logic, yes, exactly. Earth so logic, new, new phrase this is, coming in. Uh, it's I like such it a great phrase, you're going to love it. So in the fashion industry, there are two um, academics, Kate Fletcher, who's from Liverpool, and Matilda Tam. Sorry, Matilda, I don't know where you're from. But they're amazing researchers, and they write this really kind of quite beautiful, elegiac academic studies. I mean, it's incredible, their work. And they... Um, did a really simple thing. They looked at all this kind of circular economy, sustainable fashion, all of these initiatives, and they basically took them and they overlaid a mapping system of how an ecosystem works. And guess what? They found they didn't fit. So a fashion company would go, hey, we've got this groundbreaking circular economy stuff for for clothing. We're going to get it all back and we're going to spin the 
polyester into new polyester, new garms. And they were like, well, hey, it doesn't match up because it uses too much water. It puts too much chemicals. So it just didn't match. So essentially, they've developed all these protocols for designing and um, for fashion students and, and garment makers to work through to make sure that they are actually doing what the earth, what ecosystem ecosystems behave in a certain way and we've got 30 years of really good earth science it's all evidence-based we're starting to really understand how ecosystems work we are starting to understand what the boundaries of the planet are and once you have this modeling and you have this data and you have this understanding and this discipline if you're making anything if you're pushing anything out into the world it should conform to these boundaries otherwise why the hell are you making it so this is all about this shift and circular economy, like real circular economy is a huge part of that transition. And it's not just making, for example, I just did um, some filming yesterday with a really nice woman who's an ex ballet dancer. And she has started up a business three years ago where she rents your Christmas tree to you and you get the same one every year if you like it. And then you give it back to her. And then she takes it to the farm and, and makes sure that it's, you know, growing well all year. And then you get it back at Christmas. And that's that's a circular economy model. That's amazing. My uh, we, we got a really we got a Christmas tree on Christmas Eve because we're just awful parents. Uh, the uh, and uh, we didn't expect to be at home. And then we got this really piddly one. And so it's sitting on our uh sort of doorstep now but the saddest christmas trip my dad and i i briefly when i did started stand up i briefly moved in with my dad again and we were both not very we're not very house uh house proud maybe uh house uh house effective ha and when you've got a christmas tree on the pavement in may oh. like <laughs> It was like the house. That's fly tipping. <laughs> it just looks really out of place. Everyone's like, "What's what? what, what what's the what story?" What went wrong? What, like it's not uh, planted. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, James, over to you, Lucy. The, I'm loving you talking about the real circularity coalition and circular economy. I'm wondering what it means for our everyday lives, and if there's things. Is it just something that big companies can do, or is it something that you do? yourself and the things you own do you have favorite things that you own that represent this or anything like that yeah well I mean it's starting to be you do need the systems to come on stream because you know you need the frameworks to be there to get involved in circular economy which is why I get so excited when I find businesses like the Christmas tree lady that I was talking about um so there are big companies that are starting to shift to circular economy. So um, I forget which one of the car companies where they are very aggressively just looking at leasing. So you'll, but you'll lease a very specific part of the car. So for an electric vehicle, you will, you never want to own the battery for an electric vehicle. Like that's beyond your, um, you're not going to store them in your garage and, you know, have a little sideline refurbishing them. It's too hard and it's dangerous and all the rest of it. So so the the whole switch to different technologies. So at the moment, I am using an electric car, which is on loan to me from a, um, a company where you just borrow the car when you need it. 
um there's no there's no key it's all on my phone it's like so like whoa what and then I have to charge it to a certain amount instead of filling you know it's all it's all like a whole different system and it's quite interesting to try out this system during lockdown or these different tiers because there's nowhere for me to go anyway so it's been kind of weird like I don't really need a car at the moment but it's a good time because I've got a lot of extra time to work out how to charge it and how the system works so there's there's definitely some shift there the other thing that a lot of people sorry just to stop are other people using this car at the moment no because um my friend who works there said you just have it for now because it's just all too complicated (laughs) with lockdown and then you'd I I don't know I'd have to like wet wipes everywhere and you know I leave my masks in there whatever um, they don't want people catching COVID from my car. <laughs> <laughs> well, into the COVID vehicle, the the, the eco-friendly uh, COVID hotspot. Yeah, I mean, this is all another thing, you know, for rental. It's all of these systems, like blossoming systems. It's all a bit of a nightmare because they're based on the sharing economy. And at the moment, it's all about not sharing. Um, so that's a whole different point. Um, but there's also like fashion rental, which again has reached a difficult point because at the moment no one's getting going anywhere. So why do you need to rent clothes? However, the very idea of renting clothes is extremely good because we know we have a surfeit of really good quality garments in circulation. And then there's all those studies that show that people wear a tiny percentage of their wardrobe and all the rest of it. Um, so I have done um, some of the fashion rental systems as well to try those out. Um, so these things are going to become more normalized and people companies around investors saw a big shift in the way that millennials and Gen Zers started to view possessions like they didn't want a lot of possessions partly because they're living in smaller accommodation and all the rest of it and they didn't want to own or be encumbered with all of this stuff but they quite like the idea of the sharing economy I mean Uber everyone's taken an Uber that's part of the sharing economy Airbnb these are all things these are all different ownership models But what is really um, interesting, and this is not for everyone, of course, because, you know, a lot of people who are into ethical living and think that this model of sustainability is world changing, do not like capitalism. However, when the market moves and when this shifts is when it all gets invested in. And these are very hot funds, like, you know, this kind of whole ESG model. There's lots of money moving into circular economy um, and sharing economy and all of these different things that take the heat out of consumerism. Uh, the, also, what I love about this use of the word sharing economy is it genuinely, I think, uh, even those examples there, like of Airbnb and Uber and DoorDash, it's basically... Uh, avoiding regulation, which has been put in place to protect workers and city centres. What's a good word for that? Sharing? Uh, yeah, well, it's us making loads of money and then loads of other people having their entire livelihoods destroyed. Whereas you're talking about genuine, actual sharing. Economy. But then you might think about it in a different way. So Uber, for example, brought up um, some really interesting discussions. Of course, this was all pre-COVID. And a lot of female friends of mine um, felt that they, when 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 it was under discussion whether Uber would get a license mm. from the mayor of London, for example, a lot of a lot of my friends said we feel much safer. It's black cabs that we had the problem with. They wouldn't take us south of the river. They were rude. They didn't do this. They didn't do that. You know, there was a a, a very um, famous case of a black cab rapist. You know, and it's it's like you know um, they felt that Uber offered them 
more availability and it was quicker for them to get home and they felt that ultimately it was safer. So it wasn't as clear cut as it was necessarily made out. There were definitely two kind of different sides to that debate. I'm not saying that anyone was, um, uh, that I come down on any one in particular, but I thought it was interesting um, that some of the old models, and that includes the regulation that went with those models and the special interest groups and the lobbying groups, once you have a disruptor, obviously all of that starts to fall away. And then it brings us back to a very interesting point, which is slightly, sorry, off topic, but but very much something that I've looked at through my work as essentially as a consumer journalist, but just a slightly strange one who <laughs> obsessed with the environment. But we look at what warranties and what consumer guarantees actually mean. Because in one sense... I'm talking about UK regulation here, but I've also noticed it in the US and Australia, is that consumers are very, very demanding. They want this. They want it fixed. They want their right. If it's not working, take it away. Send me another one. And that creates a huge, huge amount of waste. So I actually think as consumers, we should be more demanding, but just about different things. And consumer legislation has sort of you get the consumer legislation that you deserve. And we need to prioritize and demand different sorts of rights and accountability in consumer legislation, which is a very dull topic, but it's important. I reckon you get pretty excited by it. Yeah, I would. Yeah. Doesn't mean mean anyone else would. (laughs) (laughs) The, uh, and yeah, that you just going back to because in all of this we're looking at the you know these are obviously things which are in people's lives, so we explore them to uh, help folk understand. You know, people who generally listen to this podcast want to do the right thing, uh, but then it'd be really great to understand that uh, you know what you like what you meant by that idea of the sacredness of the ecosystem, and then sort of like how that, you know, you also mentioned sort of going over the hill and suddenly seeing the sun and the, uh, the this land opening up in front of you. Like, what does that uh, look like in your life? Like, how does that connect to your work? Yeah, well, it's, it's um, I have had some extraordinary experiences where I've been able to travel to places and, see supply chains and see and and that's one of the most important things and the most beautiful things for me I'll try and bring that together a little bit so ethical supply chains where you know the person that made something um are really like to me fundamentally beautiful and are full of integrity and authenticity and where there's a chance for someone to have a decent livelihood within that chain, which should be short, but profound. I mean, not short distance wise, like I've been, you know, I've been lucky enough to go into the Amazon right to the northeast of Brazil, and stay with um, an indigenous community, the Aquana, who are sometimes in Venezuela, sometimes in Brazil. And, you know, they make baskets. And I have one of their baskets, actually, which I, I carried home. And it was like, You know, they have got this tradition of passing certain symbols down through basket weaving. Nothing's written down. There's no patterns that you can get. It's, you know, it's it's passed down from generation to generation. And one of the designs they use is a frog design. And the frog is really, really sacred in in this this particular Yukwana culture. So I went into that community with a fashion designer for a brand called Awa, which means together, I think, um, in Brazil. 
And this lady um, doesn't just rip off Indigenous culture and communities patterns and stuff she goes and negotiates for their usage so we had a really interesting dialogue over about a week and a half because the Yukwana have a different understanding of time <laughs> to to the fashion industry so there was a lot of discussion about how this frog design could be used in a way that's really purposeful and respectful by the way raising funds for the community um, and you know it is some some of the designs are too hot like too potent to be drawn in, in lots of different cultures. So another indigenous culture I came across, they, they, they use a whale motif, but they can't draw a whale because it's too sacred. So they draw a toolbox from a whaling ship that someone used to own. Like it's all like really indirect. And there's like hundreds and hundreds of years of discussion and drawing that's gone into this design. So these are the this is the truth about design and mark making and patterns and the stuff that we look around and it's an everyday fabric, you know, like even this print that I'm wearing now. I mean, I don't even know anything about where this came from. But if you truly have an ethical production line, you will know every step of that, like down to that cultural sort of detail. And this is the antithesis of this globalized supply chain that we now are so dependent on. It's so impersonal, but it's not that it's just impersonal. It's actually like undervaluing the very purpose of being a human, like everything is sucked from it. Everything is sucked from it. And I don't know if you know Wendell Berry, the poet. Yes, but not very well. I've Every now and again, he probably pops up in my various timelines and I like yeah. it. Probably liked him a few yeah. times or her. Yeah. No, I, he, he's a him. I think he goes, I think he identifies as a he. But Wendell Berry is probably the closest that the I think I, I think he's quite religious actually but I take his writing for me it conveys this idea that the integrity of that supply chain that is some that is where my spiritual center is for, for the environment it's really weird and I can't quite articulate it properly but he says this thing he says that the globalized economy seeks to undermine this integrity until all of that interaction and all of that connection is lost. And that's consumerism. That's globalized consumerism. So what I am constantly needing to do is to try and reinstate the values back into some of these supply chains. I mean, not me personally, but the people that I work with. So I try and tell the mm. stories of the people that are doing that really well. For example, there was a brand called People Tree, which I think is still around a fashion brand. I went mm. with them to Bangladesh with Safia Mini, who used to founded that company and used to run it, and Zandra Rhodes, who's an amazing British fashion designer with pink hair. Mm. And we went to Bangladesh, and Zandra had done some designs. And it was the first time, it was a fair trade factory in northern Bangladesh, very small factory, where for the first time they put organic cotton from a cooperative in India onto the loom in Bangladesh and the loom uh, operator were women. And that was the first time that had ever happened because international trade barriers penalise you for bringing organic cotton into Bangladesh and putting it on those looms. And that's why polyester, which gets a free 
free passage. So there's all of these hoops and all of these barriers to doing things in a proper way. And just to put it in a really simple context, because that's like literally the most convoluted explainer ever. If you think about how supermarkets operate, they don't have partnerships anymore with their suppliers. It is like a master-slave relationship. And it's all them barking down what they want and these very cowed suppliers who are very disempowered, um, trying desperately to provide what they want. And that has led to all sorts of problems. For example, the way that um, fruit and veg has to be a you know, cosmetically perfect or it doesn't get on the shelf. So we get all of this wastage. And these are disenfranchised, um, destabilizing relationships. And if we were to put the integrity back into the supply chains of the stuff that we use, the stuff that we consume, we would also be able to make um, sustainability or earth logic a priority again. And that's what we need to do. And that's what we will end up doing because the environmental pressures will become so great that it will become absolutely bonkers and um at the moment we externalize a lot of the environmental cost so you can get anything flown in from all over the from all across the world cheaper even if it's made from plastic than um a more sustainable product beautiful and when you said that's probably a bit convoluted uh i know that i was not as you spoke about that it's quite funny in this, uh, this is obviously an audio podcast, but as we do it, we can see each other. I can always tell when people are like talking about the thing which really moves them. And as you were speaking about this idea of connectedness, it was really a totally different vision from the world. And it was, you know, connection is so often this word which comes up as like what spirituality is, is a sense of connected to yourself, to others, to what's most important to you. And I like on a super simple level, it's like every, I've, I've got some I just put some homemade chutney uh, in a jar and I've, every now and again, I give it out as a present to someone and you or you go and receive something like that. And it's totally different. You're you know, you're eating that relationship. And and there is within that like I can I'd never I'd never thought of global supply chains as a spiritual <laughs> practice, but you know what? <laughs> that is a, that is a course which combines theology and an MBA, which you can go and take to a business school. I'm sure. I don't know. I think they think I was mad. <laughs> well, the best type of mad. I love it, uh, James. What are your reflections on like that sort of? Uh, is it a theology of? Uh, uh, supply chains. I don't know. Well, I don't. I feel like you really did come alive when you're talking about how this is kind of a spiritual kind of commitment to. I I, I interpreted it as sort of rehumanizing the supply chain. Yeah, that's it a less good word. Personal and more. And one of the things that struck me that is, if we think over kind of historic time, there was a point in human history where everything would be made like that, right? Literally everything that was made, you would know the people who made it and how probably how it was made. And that one of the challenges is that there's, there are reasons why we have the supply chains we have now and the economy we have now, because it does fulfill needs people feel they have. And that, that, that we didn't just arbitrarily create the system that we have. It's because people want things and this is one of the most efficient ways of getting them those things and and so it's like well 
it's not that there isn't value in the way that we're approaching it, but it's rediscovering the other values that we've lost along the way was sort of something that came to mind while you were talking. I don't know how you think about that. but Yeah, I think that's a good point. But I do think that um, people might feel that they that stuff is being produced in the way that they want, in the way that they need, but they would often be surprised. And this is one of the things I loved about being able to tell these stories. I don't have my newspaper column anymore, unfortunately, but I'd love to find another outlet because the truth of the matter is that quite often they realise that the thing is not being produced in the way that they thought for them at all, as we've seen a lot in fast fashion. And fast fashion brands, um, there are a lot of them in the UK. And I would say that um, Philip Green is a a good example of that. Um, uh, And, you know, we've seen the collapse of brands and stores and retailers that were really important to us, you know, particularly like my generation and my contemporaries. We grew up with those stores. We worked in those stores as Saturday girls and when we were at college and some of us went on and had jobs there. Um, And they were really, really part of our lives. And we thought they were supplying fashion for us to look good, to be on trend. Like we thought, we genuinely thought they were helping us to be on trend, whatever that means. Like, that's crazy, isn't it? And now you look back and you look at the mechanisms and you look at the CVAs and you look at the way that this was manipulated and actually a lot of it was about property deals. And, you know, you think, what What were we thinking? You can get a consumer cohort. Listen, this is what you do, okay? You get citizens, you tell them they're consumers, you slice off a segment of those consumers and you tell them you need this. And without this, you are nothing. And it's amazingly effective, amazingly effective. And it's kind of easy for me to say because I had my day and I, you know, had a really serious fast fashion habit. And I used to have to get changed more than once a day so that I could wear all the clothes that I bought. Um, You also wet yourself a lot. I I wet myself. That was a big yeah, that's a big. That's another reason. There's a changing was happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that hasn't changed. Okay, phew. don't go changing, Lucy. Yes. <laughs> Diapers are amazing, but but you, but you, you know, it's like, why was I in that? Why was I in that cycle? Like, why was I so needing to be on trend? On trend with what? Who were you know? Who was noticing? And that created a whole pressure in and of itself. And then we see the rise of um, consumer debt in that cohort and we see you know we see every lever being pulled especially around fast fashion and for young women today there's no escape because they've got Instagram and they've got somebody on them like 24 7 selling them something or making them feel a little bit uneasy we've become very good at at creating felt needs in people that might not be real needs and might not even be fulfilling when you get the thing that you're told you need but it's a difficult what I'm just stunned by the ambition of your project because it really is an entire cultural shift mm. about how we think about almost everything. Mm. Um, but I love how you've talked about some of the specific examples about how you're bringing it about. Yes, I mean, I mean, there's uh, there's going to be so sorry. many. There's going to it's, it's immer- and what's really exciting is that we have a lot of the tools now and a lot of the methodology. I spoke about planetary boundaries. We've got a lot of the evidence base. And when you see um, young entrepreneurs today um, who are starting out, they don't want to replicate the waste 
and they understand that there are changes coming and there are pressures coming and they look ahead. So we're going to get this sort of leapfrogging moment when businesses will not be made in the same bowl, in, in the same mould, because all of that's kind of already been done. The levers have been pulled um, and the, the, the spoils are not as great for one. So now we have to think ahead. So it can sound like I'm being a little bit like um, maybe over-optimistic, but things are changing very, very fast. And what we do know is that these, once disrupted, these these business models, they can change like virtually overnight. That is a super uh, inspiring place to end, and particularly because the Lifefulness Project, we're sort of dedicated to reinventing the congregation. And I think they're both similarly ambitious projects, so we can uh, yes. hold our hands uh, uh, along the way and occasionally go and uh, sort of commiserate with each other. Where is the best place where people can get maximum Lucy Ziegler? Well, I mean, you know, I do like social media a lot and I'm on Twitter. So, you know, you just have to spell my surname right. S-I-E-G-L-E. And it is a difficult one. I've been researching uh, <laughs> you and it, I've spelt it uh, wrong yeah. every single time and it's spelled Z. No Z. No Z. Uh, <laughs> it's spelled S-I-E-G-L-E. I was going to say why because we want to, but then I'd end up people no, think no that it's why. had a why on the no end. Why. There's no why no. either. This is the worst, worst. <laughs> Thank you. And also uh, follow that has ever happened. So, uh, hey, thanks so much, uh, Lucy. Thank uh, you've you. been great. Thanks, everyone who's been listening and also watching online. We're going to end it right here. How great was Lucy? Answer Pretty bloody great. Uh, Yeah, uh, it was so awesome to hang out with her. She's really fun. She's wicked smart. And I really want to, you know, I have a feeling that we might find uh, cool stuff to do together in the future. So, uh, yeah. At the as people know at the end of the podcast I always talk a bit about the uh, what's happening in the lifefulness community and then uh, also uh, what's happening in the lifefulness project. And One of the things which I've been thinking about, I think I touched on it last time, is that actually from the difference from when we started the podcast to now is, uh, you know, there really is a sort of community there. And, you know, there's lifefulness communities all over the world in the different Sunday Assembly chapters. But from the start of this podcast, from saying that we're going to start some small groups, we ran a pilot which went really well. Uh, and it's just so much authentic connecting, just like really, really deep, purposeful, uh, you know, authentic connecting. I don't know why I had to just do it sarcastically there. I Sometimes I feel uh, still too British to talk about this work. But uh, yeah, and then we went and have got some new small groups and Life on This 101, this course starting. And yeah, it feels exciting to you know that this is like up and running and i just can't wait to sort of see it grow we're intentionally growing small bit by bit so that like we can really develop a great culture uh great culture <laughs> again there's a bit of me which i've you know sound like i'm a i've listened to a lot of american football like a, a new gm a new coach coming in we're gonna install our winning culture uh but uh yeah, there's, you know, you've got to sort of go and do it bit by bit. And so, yeah, that's exciting. I'm starting to 
look ahead to the time when, you know, this will be a podcast from a community for a community as it sort of goes and switches around. And so, yeah, that is exciting. Uh, I mean, it's also been, oh God, I've been uh, developing the curriculum for the Lifefulness 101 course. And we've had it like blocked out and planned and all of this stuff. And oh, I still really get into my own head around making things. Like there is... Uh, some imposter syndrome uh, going on. Uh, I don't know if you ever have it. You go and think of like some uh, professional uh, colleague that you, uh, I suppose, as if there aren't professional colleagues, a family colleague, uh, some colleague or sort of co-worker or someone that I could go and compare myself to. I still do that too much uh whenever i get on twitter and i'm like oh god well nish kumar gets four million retweets or whoever it might be and uh, uh and then this goes and has a rare old time mixing together with a bit of adhd sort of brain fuzz and uh anyway it was just uh like a bit tricky to get started but then i found a way to do it because i'm a saint uh so uh that is sort of what's been going on and yeah I suppose the other thing is that yeah obviously lockdown was announced I feel a bit like I'm super relieved that my life hasn't had to change the nurseries are still open I don't have any kids in school my heart goes out to anyone who is either totally cut off from someone or suddenly has a load of kids in the house oof so uh, but you know it didn't really changed things hugely and Casa Jones. So uh, yeah, that is, uh, that's the that. Oh, I forgot that my New Year's resolution is to uh, really spread as much joy and positivity as I can. Uh, Well, actually, the course has been good for that because I've been writing some meditations and contemplations. And so that has really connected me to it. So uh, thanks so much for listening to the uh chit chat wiffle waffle at the end uh i really you know just wish you so much love and support and i hope that whatever you are wherever you are you are able to find joy whether it's in the main or in the little bit around the edges and that you're able to uh really appreciate the wild ride we call life So uh, thanks for listening. You're number one in the credits always. Thanks so much to uh, my co-host, James Croft. Uh, Then thanks to Will Andrews for the artwork, Mav Shetty for the production, and to Roman Rapak and Miro Schott for the music you're listening to right now.